If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6. And um, we, we ended last week's sermon with the section in verse 53 through uh, 56, but I actually think it's a theme in Mark's gospel that's really important, so I don't, I don't think it just helps us understand the passage that we were in last week. I think it's a theme to help us understand the passage that we're in this week as well. And so when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard Jesus was. And wherever he came, in the villages, the cities, the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and even dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. He also said, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is to God or dedicated to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things do you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand this. There's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and then it is expelled. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we bow again before your word and do ask your blessings upon it. Would you be pleased to use your servant to bless your people, that we might leave here better able to detect the counterfeit 
and more in love with the beautiful, authentic, pure, and lovely Christianity that Christ has won for his people. May we believe these truths and rest in them this day. For Christ's sake, amen. Uh, by, by some estimates, uh, creating and selling counterfeit goods has ballooned into an industry that's worth uh, over $461 billion annually. Now, this week as I was thinking about the prevalence of the counterfeit, uh, just thinking through like, man, is this idea right under our noses? And we just don't see it. And so I took the liberty to bring a few things just sort of from, from my own world that illustrate this idea of the counterfeit. And so, first thing, right? Here's a box of Cuban cigars, right? Now, you can buy Cuban cigars anywhere, and everybody will sell them to you. But did you actually know that the country of Cuba, that they, they have created this system where they put this hologram on it, and um, you can open this, and there are seals of authenticity, and there's a signature on it. So nine times out of ten, if you're going somewhere like Miami or Cuba, and you get a Cuban cigar, if it doesn't have these seals on it, that you, can, you can't go online and track this number from this seal that will tell you when that cigar was made and where it was made, nine times out of ten, you're buying a counterfeit. How many of you have been to the store and you pull out a $50 bill and it's nothing about your race or what you look like or you're dressed like, like that day that the cash register, the, the woman or the man running the register, they will not take your word for it. They will pull out one of these markers and write on your bill. Why? Because we counterfeit cigars, we counterfeit money. There's a shampoo that my wife purchased once, and it's this right here. It's called Tea Tree. And on the back of this shampoo, it actually says, and I'm reading it verbatim, this product is only guaranteed when purchased within a professional beauty salon and not from a drugstore, supermarket, or another unauthorized source. Why would they put this on a bottle of shampoo? It's because people will counterfeit shampoo that smells like peppermint, right? And my favorite, it's a pair of Jordan 1s, the Spider-Man edition, right? Now, if you're into shoes, buying and selling sneakers, which I promise you, it is a thing. I mean, you can buy a shoe for $85. You can sell this shoe for a grand. It's a thing. But there's a new technology out called StockX, and it's like the stock market for shoes. If you want the latest pair of shoes, you go to StockX.com, and they will, you can type in the shoe you want, and they will tell you the, 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 the purchasing value and the resale value. So if you could get your hands on a pair of shoes in Jackson, and you can put it on StockX, and someone in China can buy your shoe, and guess what StockX, they figured out? That there is so much counterfeiting of shoes 
that for you to buy a shoe from me, I don't sell you my shoe directly. I send my shoe to Detroit, and in Detroit, they have people on assembly lines who take the shoe that I send them out, and they look at it and pull the sole out, and they make sure it's authentic before they send it to you in China. Now, and here is the seal right here. It's this green seal on this shoe, and it says verified authentic. And it has a barcode on the back, and they can tell you what line it came down. They can tell you what person authenticated the shoe. Why? Because there are millions of pairs of shoes being counterfeited in China that make their way into America. And then we buy them thinking we're buying real Jordans, and they're knockoffs, they're bootleg. You see it? You can think of countless of things that can be counterfeited. And it should not surprise us that Jesus runs into a counterfeit religion. He runs into religious people who have the appearance of the real thing, but it's not the real thing. And for counterfeiting to work, right, it has to have some semblance to the real thing. It has to, by the human eye, it has to look remotely like this thing is like the real thing. And Jesus is saying, I can see through the false. I can see through the fake. Last week, I made the case to you that hardness of heart is going to show itself in these sections that we're encountering in Mark 6 and 7. And I think hardness of heart shows itself in counterfeit Christianity. Now, when I say counterfeit Christianity, I'm lumping all other religions into it. They may be hostile to Christianity, but the case that I think we can make from Scripture is they're actually trying to solve some things only Christianity can solve. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. I think the first thing Jesus shows us in our passage is the power of the counterfeit. The backdrop to this passage is confrontation. Did you notice that, that Jesus, look at verse, verse 1 of chapter 7, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, this is not the first time we've seen them confront and find Jesus in Mark's gospel. If you remember in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, it was the Pharisees who came there and asked him, why are you eating with sinners? If you remember in Mark chapter 2 and 3, it was the Pharisees and the scribes who followed Jesus on the Sabbath day when Jesus' disciples were picking grain and then into the synagogue when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, they were following Jesus because they thought he was breaking the Sabbath. If you remember when Jesus cast out demons, it was the scribes and the Pharisees who came to him. You're doing this by the power of Satan. In other words, if you look at Mark's gospel, this is the, this is the outworking of a, of a series of confrontations between the religious establishment of Jesus' day and Jesus himself. And here's what you notice here is they came all the way from Jerusalem to Gennesaret, which is, that means nothing to us, but man, it's 110 miles north. And they would not go through Samaria, so they had to cross over into the Jordan. 
go north and then cross back over and then go around the lake without cars. No wonder in Matthew, what does Jesus say about them in Matthew? He says, woe to you scribes and woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when they become proselytes, you make them twice as much as children of hell as you are. That's what's happening in the passage. They're actually traveling 110 miles north on foot to come and confront Jesus. And he ain't going. Now, they're deceived by the counterfeit. But did you notice it's not just them? That Mark gives us a bracket, which I think we have to pay attention in Mark's gospel. Notice what it says in chapter 7, verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of elders. And so, so right there, you're starting to see this isn't just the Pharisees, that whatever they're doing with this washing, it's not just the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. And then Mark gives us this, this insert, and all the Jews. Now, I don't think he literally means every single one, but for him to put all the Jews in there, this thing has elevated. It's not just something the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. If you were to look at the average Jew in Mark's day, Mark says you will see the same thing, that they're doing this washing and they're washing everything. And here's the thing. It's not just the Jews in Mark's day. Did you pay attention to what Jesus says in verse 6 and 7? He said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Did you catch who Jesus quotes? Now, now, now think about this. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, who was a real prophet who prophesied and preached 700 years before Jesus showed up. And so what Jesus does is he's saying two things. First, Isaiah said this about the Jews 700 years ago. They were doing it then. And then Jesus does what is beautiful. He says, look, what Isaiah preached about back then 700 years ago, it's true of you now. So now we're not talking about just Jewish people who were alive and on the earth in March day. Jesus actually says, brothers and sisters, this is a 700-year-old problem. And to make matters worse, did you catch what happened in verse 17? Look at it in the Bible of, 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 of chapter 7, verse 17. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? It's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the scribes. It's not just all the Jews. It's not the Jews who were alive in Isaiah's day. It's the disciples with Jesus right then and there. And though they did not wash their hands, they are struggling to believe why they're not doing what everybody else is doing. 
He says, are you ignorant of this as well? Why? Why does Mark show us this? That whatever this counterfeit is, that it's problematic historically. It's problematic culturally. It's problematic for those alive in Jesus' day. I think the case that Mark is making to us is that this is not a past tense problem. That this being deceived by counterfeit religion that has the appearance of godliness but denying its power, that that is not just something for those folks back then. It's something that we encounter right now. You see, I was with someone on Saturday night at the retreat, and we were all kind of hanging around, my wife and several other families, sharing, and she broke down in tears because her brother, her flesh and blood brother, is following the counterfeit, having tasted the promises of Christ, having grown up in the church, and what he and his family are into right now has the appearance of Christianity, and it's not. You see, I think the reason this is so problematic, and I can guarantee you that as we have young children, they're going to encounter it. I've talked to some of you, and you wonder, how did my kid go to college and get lost in all this crazy stuff, right? How, how, how does this person hear this stuff, and then they go on later in life, and they buy into this other stuff? I want, here's why. Because God has written eternity on our hearts. He's put that there. And we know that we're not supposed to die. He's put this idea of sin there, and we know when we say we're sorry, we know we're not measuring up to some cosmic standard, and we know, and here is what the heart does. Though the heart knows and feels, and in some mysterious way, God embeds this on us, the heart does not know how to find its way to true hope. And so what we do is we conjure up and we search for things and philosophies and practices and ideologies, all these things out there that we think if we do this thing, then this thing will resolve the tension. And it doesn't resolve the tension. It's, it's powerful. And this awareness, it can diminish and it can be intensified, but it's there. And so some get to this place, well, maybe if I just go to a mosque, that will close the gap. Or maybe if I go to church and, and, and pay my respects to the man upstairs for all the stuff that I do wrong downstairs, then maybe this transaction of me giving him a little bit of my time on a Sunday morning and it's going to justify what I do until the next Sunday morning. Maybe he's a transactional God like that. And as, as we do this thing, then maybe me going on one day is going to take away the guilt. And it's not. Or maybe if I burn sage in my house and I take a moment to center and gather myself and breathe out all the bad things and, and take in and center. Maybe if I do that, then or maybe if I'm a social justice warrior. 
Or maybe if I take up the cause for the poor, then maybe I can outdo the wrong things I've done and I can go out there and write and seek to save the world. And at the end, God's going to say, okay, brother or sister, your causes and your passion and your sacrifices, they cancel out all of your iniquity. You are in and no, it doesn't work. The human heart will create these things these ideologies, because we're trying to solve the tension that's there. It's powerful. These are religious people whom the Spirit of God worked in their midst, and they still constructed the counterfeit. I think the second thing to think through is what are the problems with the counterfeit? There's a 30 for 30. How many of you watch 30 for 30? Raise your hand. All right. I, I got you. It's enough. So ESPN does these documentaries, and some of them are amazing. They'll track players who made a lot of money and blew all of their money because they let their homeboys run their companies, right? And they'll just track them. They'll track great athletes and say, where are they now and what are they doing, right? There's one called the counterfeiter. You, you got to watch it, in my opinion, right? I think it, it's only right. But there, there's this guy. He's an artist. At some point, he confesses to being good with drawing and writing. And so this guy starts this multi-million dollar scam. And what he does is he... he, he learns the signature of every single professional athlete. And then, he, then, and then he signs their names on baseball cards, on jerseys, on papers, on magazines. And he's an artist. And so brother got this stroke down, right? I mean, I'm talking about like he knows how the paper needs to be oriented and what kind of pen that that person would have used. I mean, this guy studies it, and he perfects it. So much so that they become multimillionaires by getting, old, by getting baseballs from Walmart and, 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 and signing them and selling them to you for 150 grand because you think you're buying an autographed Sammy Sosa baseball, right? And so the FBI became aware of it, and they did this, this multi-layered sting. And they had to find someone from the inside who knows sports memorabilia. And so they did their work, and they found the leading expert, and they hired dude. Like, how, how would you like that? You're, 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 you're sitting managing a, 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 a baseball card shop, and the FBI knocks on your door, and says, hey, we want you to come work for us. And so they hire this guy, and this guy comes up with this matrix. It's counterfeit, it's counterfeit, it's counterfeit, it's counterfeit. And here is his matrix. Right? Here is some of what he says. This is how you can discern the counterfeit. He says, first of all, these dudes have a problem with timing. There is no way in the world this guy can hit this home run and he breaks the record books today and tomorrow there is an autographed ball on the other side of the country by four o'clock 
And so he says, look, this is a timing issue, right? He says, it's a volume issue. That think about the number of balls that are out there. Do you know if this guy really signed all of these balls on that night, there is no way he could have practiced or played or slept or did anything else. The sheer volume of what's hitting the market is wrong. Then there's a guy named Mark McGuire, who's a famous baseball player. He says he doesn't even sign sports memorabilia. So if you start seeing balls and books and jerseys signed by Mark McGuire, who does not sign books and jerseys and balls, I can tell you he did not sign that. And then they got really fancy. They started to find, we found old book, old balls by Babe Ruth signed. And it's, no, that's not true. And he studied it, right? What they were doing was taking these new balls, forging Babe Ruth's signature. They had created this orange solution that they dipped the ball into to make the ball look weathered and old. And the guy's just like, man, how long you want me to do it? This is counterfeit. And they busted the ring. I mean, they, they blew it up. I think you can make the case that that's what Jesus is doing in the passage. The people may be deceived. The buyers of fraudulent balls may be deceived. The counterfeiters of religion may be deceived. But there's a sheriff in town who isn't. He knows the heart. And he knows the Father. And so I think what Jesus is doing is actually showing us this is how you discern the counterfeit. And the first thing is it's the wrong authority. That this religious institution that's being built up as the real, at its core, it has the wrong authority. Now, did you notice this wordplay? Um, that has to do with the tra tradition of the elders, that it, it's worth seeing. In verse 3, they do not eat unless they wash properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. In verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? In verse 7, you are teaching as doctrine from God the commandments of men. In verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. In verse 9, you reject the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. In verse 13, you make void the word of God by your tradition. In other words, Jesus is saying, I can sniff out the fake because your authority is man-centered and not God-centered. And both Jesus and Mark, they, they act, I think it's kind of humorous. But did you notice what Mark says in verse 4? And this is Mark commenting on what he sees or what he hears at least. They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as washing cups and pots and copper vessels and their couches. Mark is saying, brother, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Them washing their hands? There are many other things, like washing anything they buy, like scrubbing their couches down. Like, like he said, look, I can't waste more ink on telling you all the traditions they've come up with. 
And then Jesus reiterates it down there in verse 13. He actually says, you make void the word of God by your tradition you have handed down and many other such things you do. You hear what Mark and Jesus are saying? This is only the beginning. They've come up with so many other things that they have to do. And Jesus illustrates it. He says, Moses says, honor your father and mother. Moses also says, whoever reviles father and mother must die. So that's the word of God. But you say, if a man tells his parents, whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is devoted to God, what does he say? You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, and you make void the word of God by your tradition. What is Jesus getting at? There was a tradition that they came up with that you could claim something korban or this is devoted to the Lord. And this was a loophole, right? That the Lord says, honor your father and mother, care for them in old age. It's your responsibility. And they have this loophole where we create this tradition over here where if we devote these things to the Lord, now when I'm supposed to be caring for my parents, I can actually use this religious loophole to say, well, dad, that is devoted to the Lord. And now I circumvent the word of the Lord and I'm using the tradition of men to do it. That is how sick Jesus says they are. And so not only is the tradition wrong, but the source of defilement is also wrong. That in our passage, there is this emphasis on external things. Remember, eternity has been written on our heart. And so there is this gnawing sense of being unclean and trying to do something to get clean. And what makes us unclean? And notice what happens in the text. Then in verse 2, verse 5, verse 15, verse 18, verse 20, and in verse 23, there's this allusion to what makes a person defiled or unclean. And for them, the source of uncleanness was outside. It was of the people. It was dirt. It was mud. Look at verse 4. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. What's wrong with the marketplace? What's so bad about that place? All right, here's a history note. Gennesaret was, a nick, the nickname for that city was the Garden of God. Because produce was so abundant there. Olives, walnuts, palms, figs, grapes pomegranates, rice, wheat, vegetable, melons, and of course, fish. And so there was also a health resort there. And so when you hear about all the sick being there, there's a health resort there where sick people would go to try to get healing. Now, it would also mean this, that you had any and everyone in the marketplace trying to buy stuff, and sell stuff. Jews and Gentiles, lepers, the poor, 
everyone would go to the marketplace to do business. And it necessarily meant that if you went to go buy, buy rice or you went to go get fish, nine times out of 10, you're brushing against someone unclean. And so what would they do? As soon as they got home, we're going to wash our hands to the fist. And Mark actually has a word in there in verse 4. The word for washing is the word baptize. So when they go to the marketplace, right, when they're going just out and about, they're washing. But when they go to the marketplace where all those folks are, they come home and Mark says they take a bath because of where they've been. Where is defilement for them, at least as Jesus is exposing it? It's outside. It's those people. It's those foods. It's those things. It's, the problem is outside. And Jesus says, nope, that's wrong. But it, th- there's also wrong evidence for internal change. Because the problem was outside, then they became more concerned with what they looked like than what they actually were. And so Jesus says in verse 6, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? You give me lip service, but the heart is far from me. You're wearing a mask and you're pretending. And it's the wrong posture towards the outsider. How would you feel if you just sold a rabbi some vegetables and you heard in their tradition that once they buy your vegetables, they go home and take a bath because they've encountered you. How does that feel? There's a famous picture that you can Google it, but there was a teenager by the name of Mimi Jones, and it was in St. Augustine, Florida in 1964. And she and her friends went to go swim in a motel swimming pool and the manager of the swimming pool, upon seeing their sight, he comes outside with bleach and acid and he pours it into the swimming pool where they are swimming. You know what message he's sending. You're kind, you're unclean, and I will not get in the pool with your kind in there. It feels like when someone has had a long night drinking and drugs and they didn't get to change their clothes and they walk into church and they have the aroma of being out in the world and we move away from them when they sit next to us. That's what it feels like. You are unclean. And here is what Jesus is saying. Wrong authority, wrong source of defilement, wrong evidence of change, wrong posture towards the outsider. Did you catch the wordplay? While the Pharisees went to the marketplace, they bathed and washed, 
Did you read up in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 56? And whenever Jesus came in villages and cities and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. These two religions are worlds apart. The Pharisees want to move away from unclean people. And what is Jesus doing in the passage? He says, come on, come towards me. You will not make, you are not above me and my love that you're getting these two religions that don't look the same. And in the end, if you embrace the counterfeit, you end up with a religion built on the traditions of men that is bolstered by this increasing list of insider knowledge that the average person can't keep up with that allows you to brandish the appearance of holiness while the heart remains bound in sin that makes one feel good without being good, that bans the weak and lowly from fellowship, that does not give you the borrowed righteousness of Christ, and thus you still are beneath the wrath of God. And you know what Jesus says we need to do with that kind of religion? We need to go flush it down the toilet. That's where it goes. And we see it in our day. That I think this is where all religions, except Christianity, that they sound the same. You change a few names, change a few practices and, and places, but the gist is the same. You need to do these things. You need to read this book, eat these foods, follow these teachings of this person who has somehow been given some special revelation or vision, and don't do these things, and then you'll be fine. Black Hebrew Israelites. I got to arguing with a dude for 30 minutes on a bus in Harlem a few years ago. He's on the bus, man, going in, just talking about white people. You cannot go to heaven. Black people are the chosen people. And he started to appropriate Jewish history for the history of African Americans. And he's just like going in on everybody on the boat, I mean, on the bus. And I'm up there having my quiet time. I'm like, Lord, I don't want to have to say nothing to this dude, right? And so we're on a bus, and we get to arguing. And I pull my Bible out, and we're arguing toe-to-toe on a bus in Harlem because this guy is spewing out the counterfeit. What you mean you got to be black to be saved? Right? I've had Mormons knock on my door. And we stay right next door to the intern house. In the intern house, we've had Mormons come to our house in my neighborhood, and they won't come anymore. Because yes, you can come in, and you might not have a cup of tea, but I'm gonna have some tea, and we can sit down and we can talk. And they're telling me about Joseph Smith and some special revelation that he got. And how how he can't have tea with me because Joseph Smith says you can't drink hot fluids. And I'm like, dude, what if your child gets, what if you get the flu? You can't take Theraflu? Like, what are you talking about, right? And he pulls out his Bible. And he pulls out his Bible and his, his, his Book of Mormon. And, and we're going in. And it's, again, he's exalting these traditions. Religions will tell you, you have to pray this way. 
or make a pilgrimage to this place or you can't have a blood transfusion. Why? Right? Like why? You, you can't celebrate holidays. You can't. Did you not know that one of the writers of the Bible was a medical doctor? And you hear all these things. You can't do this and you, you can't smoke and you can't wear pants if you're a lady and you can't wear makeup and you, you can't wear earrings and you have to, we, we come up with all of these things and do you know what it does? It creates this insider language, this religion erected by men and it stiff arms everyone else. And that is not the Bible. It's not the Bible. And I think it's even hard for Christians. Aren't we deceived as well? You remember Peter, who was right there when Jesus declares all food clean? You remember the revelation he got in Acts chapter 10? Peter, it's clean. Rise, kill, eat. Lord, no, I've never touched anything common. Same words in this passage. And Paul had to confront Peter to his face when Peter was eating with the Gentiles and the people from Jerusalem, same language, came to Peter who were preaching, you have to have Jesus and be circumcised. And Paul says, I oppose Peter to his face. See, I don't think it's just non-believers who can revert back to the counterfeit. I think we can. The performance treadmill, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that this is not just something they wrestle with. We will get back on the counterfeit if we're honest. And so the question that we have to ask is, who delivers us? And Jesus says, I do. We don't just need to be exposed to the counterfeit. We need real deliverance from a real person. And Jesus says, I will take you off the counterfeit. I will take you off that treadmill and bring you to what is real. How did Paul get Peter off the treadmill? He says, you're not living in step with the gospel. The gospel is what gets us off of the treadmill. And I think if there is a way that you can discern the counterfeit, I think what Jesus would have us to do is how do we discern the real? And Jesus starts with the real authority. Did you notice how many times he refers to the word of God in verse 8, the commandment of God? Verse 9, the commandment of God. Verse 13, the word of God. Did you notice that Jesus actually quotes Isaiah? Then he quotes Moses twice. And then down there in verses 21 through 23, notice what he says. He uses these language, this language, evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Where is that list coming from? It's coming from the Ten Commandments. In other words, Jesus is appealing to the right authority, not what a man says, but what Yahweh has said. That is where we start. And if we truly take the Lord at his word, 
the law of God crushes us. Did you notice? He says adultery, but then he brings up coveting and deceit and sensuality. Jesus is not just dealing with actions. He's also dealing with desires and motivations. And I think what he is saying, if you really, really, really want to deal with the authority of God, it is going to crush you. The word of God is going to make you feel inferior and small and sinful. And that is exactly what it's supposed to do. Why? Because the source of defilement is not external. He actually says it's the heart. When his word goes there and shows us him, it will lead us to a place where the problem is not food or drink or clothing or people. The problem is my heart. It's wrong. That is where defilement happens. And those unclean foods, they were not a stop sign, Israel. They were arrows pointing to your inner defilement. And the change that God is after is not just external. He's after inner heart change. How would you feel, wives, if your husband came home one day with flowers and candy, and on it was written, love, no, on it was written, here are the flowers that I'm supposed to give you. Period. How would you feel hearing or reading that? You appreciate the desire, I mean, you appreciate the act, but don't you want him to want to give you that? Don't you want him to take joy and, and, and to want to serve you in that way? You are not just concerned with external behavior. You want the desire moving to external behavior. And if we want that, how much more does God? Do we actually think God just wants external behavior? Or does he want it flowing from an inner heart that's been changed? And we can't yield that. We can't give it. And so, praise God that the Christianity of the Bible has a real love towards outsiders. That before all time, God has desired to create this beautiful family of broken and redeemed people. And he didn't avoid humanity, but he appeared and created ways to commune with us without compromising his holiness. So there was a temple and a, a tabernacle and feasts and sacrifices. Also, that there could be communion between the unholy and the holy. And the only person that was supposed to wash... In the Bible, it was not normal Jews. The person who was supposed to wash and be clean, it was the mediator. It was the priest. When the priest comes into time to serve, he himself must wash. He must be clean. And then he will be an intercessor between an unclean people and a clean God. God never commanded Israel to do all of these things they were doing. That was reserved for the priest. And Jesus says, that's me. 
I'm the one who's clean. I'm the one who will mediate. When you bring the sick people to me, they will be made clean. And I will begin to carry their guilt. I will keep the law. I will change the heart. Put their guilt on me, says Jesus, that I will die, that they might be clean. And Jesus looks at us and says, I have hushed the law's loud thunder. I have washed you with my blood, and I and I alone will bring you home to God. Why do people counterfeit goods? Because they can't afford the real thing. Why do people make counterfeit goods? Because the price to sell the real goods would be too high. I think the truth is that's true for religion. We counterfeit religion because the price is high. And here is what Jesus says to you. I will not bat an eye at paying that price to make you clean now and forever. I will make you clean. You're clean in me and in me alone. I pray that we would rest in that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being a real Savior who obeyed the real word of God, who died on a real cross to remove our real guilt, to give us real righteousness, to change our real hearts, to bring us to our real home. I pray that we would rest in that this day, this hour. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.